our spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 2. And, of course, on Wednesday nights, uh, we are studying through the book of Hebrews. We began several weeks ago in this verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of Hebrews. And we spent three weeks in Hebrews chapter number 1. And really, I would say we spent two weeks in Hebrews chapter 1 because the first sermon in Hebrews chapter 1 was kind of an overview of the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, But tonight, we are beginning Hebrews chapter number 2. And tonight will be the first in two sermons that we'll spend, two evenings that we'll spend studying uh, the book of Hebrews. And of course, Wednesday nights are Bible study night, and uh, Hebrews is definitely a, a good book to do on a Wednesday night because this is just full of doctrine and theology. There's so much in these verses. Uh, they're jam-packed, and uh, I, I think uh, studying the Word of God is the most important thing that we could do uh, with, with our evening, and uh, I'm excited um, that there's a place like Verity Baptist Church where almost 200 people would show up in the middle of the week to study the Bible and uh, to go verse by verse through the Word of God. And I want to encourage you uh, to, of course, take notes. And as we travel through this passage, there's going to be a lot of cross-references and things, a lot of things uh, to look at. Just by way of introduction, let me just say this, just to kind of help you understand uh, the context. If you remember, if you were with us for Hebrews chapter 1, or if you remember Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, had a major theme, which was the deity of Christ. If there was anything that was proven in Hebrews chapter 1, it is the fact that Jesus is God and that Jesus is God in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 2, we now have another major theme regarding the doctrines of Christ. And what's emphasized in this chapter is not the deity of Christ that was covered in chapter 1, but in this chapter, we cover the humanity of Christ. And what we'll see in this chapter is the emphasis on the humanity of Christ, the importance of the humanity of Christ, and how that plays a role in regards to salvation and how, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ ministers to us even after salvation. Now, just so you kind of understand, verses 1 through 8, the first part of this chapter, uh, there's some really great teaching and there's a lot of detail in this verses that we're going to uh, look at. And the first eight verses, they kind of set us up for the rest of the chapter because in the rest of the chapter, we have some great applications uh, regarding the humanity of Christ and why it is important for us to understand um, that Jesus was both man and God. He was 100% man. He was 100% God um, all at the same time. He was man without ever ceasing uh, to be God. In verses 1 through 8, we set up for that. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through verses 1 through 8, and then we'll cover verses 9 through 18 uh, next Wednesday night as we uh, pick up our study here in uh, the book of Hebrews. So there's really two major themes in the first eight verses, and I'll kind of give you uh, the headings if you'd like, uh, and you can jot these down. The first heading, uh, if, if you're taking notes, is what we see is the law of Moses versus the life of Christ. And that's really how I want to word it because that's what we see. We see the law of Moses versus the life of Christ. And what we're going to see as we continue in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that the old covenant, the law of Moses, and the things covered in that Mosaic covenant are going to come up a lot, the Sabbath days and the sacrifices and the feasts and all those things. And the writer of Hebrews is first establishing who Jesus is. 
He's establishing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that that means he's God in the flesh, and he's establishing the fact in chapter 2 that he is the Son of Man, that he is uh, 100% God, 100% man. We're going to move towards this idea that Jesus is better, that the New Testament's better than the Old Testament, that the, and how it is that New Testament believers should reconcile the Old Testament uh, to their belief system. But here we get a little hint of that with the writer of Hebrews beginning to kind of bring this argument out uh, of the law of Moses versus the life of Christ. And I want you to notice that he begins with this idea that the writings of the law of Moses were great. And we really do believe that, that the Old Testament, we're talking about the Law of Moses, we're talking about the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible, that there are great portions of Scripture, and there's lots that we can learn from them. Notice there in Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse number 1, the Bible says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And let me just say this, in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 2, there's a lot of great application. We're actually going to skip that uh, uh, at the beginning here. I'm going to take you through the passage in its context, and then we're going to come back to the first three verses at the end of the sermon and kind of hit some of those applications. But, uh, so, so just know that as we read there past verse 1, look at verse 2. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, For if, he says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, now, he's, he's making a comparison and a contrast here, and he's saying, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and then he's going to make a point, he says, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, and then in verse 3, he's going to take that comparison and that contrast to make a point, but I, I want us to make sure we understand what he's talking about. When he says the word spoken by angels, he says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. And I want you to understand that that is a reference to the Mosaic law. When he says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, he is referring to the law of Moses. Now, he doesn't come out and just say that because he doesn't want to come out swinging, right? Because remember, the book of Hebrews was originally written. Obviously, we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's all profitable. But the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers, to uh, Jewish descendants that were Christians in the first century to teach them how to correlate and how to transition between the Old Testament to the New Testament. So he says, he brings up the Old Testament, but he doesn't just come out and say that. He's going to say it very clearly in the next few chapters. But here he just very subtly says, if the word spoken, or I should say discreetly says, uh, by angels was steadfast. But we know that that is a reference to the Mosaic law. Now let's just run some references and I'll show that to you uh, from the Bible. How do we know that the word spoken by angels is referring to the Mosaic law or to the law of Moses? Keep your place there in Hebrews 2. That, of course, is our text for tonight. And go with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 7. If you begin at the New Testament, at the beginning of the New Testament, you have the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, look at verse 53. How do we know that Hebrews 2, 2, the word spoken by angels, is a reference to the Old Testament Mosaic law or the law of Moses. Acts 7, verse 53. Notice what Acts 7, 53 says. Who have received the law. I want you to notice those words. This is always a reference to the Old Testament covenant. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. 
Now, there's lots going on in Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to take the time to go through it. I'm not preaching through Acts chapter 7, but I want you to notice that there is a reference here to the law being given by the disposition of angels. So we see here in Acts 7.53 that the law, according to Acts 7.53, was given or received the law by the disposition of angels. That's not the only place we see that. Go to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Do me a favor, keep your place in the book of Acts. We're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I'd like you to be able to get to it quickly. So put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Acts chapter 7 and go with me to the book of Galatians. Now, if you go past the book of Acts, past the book of Romans, past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll find the book of Galatians. Acts, Romans, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians. Then you have the book of Galatians. And notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, the Bible says, Wherefore then serveth the law. Notice again, the, the context is the law. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Notice what it says. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So I want you to notice that in Acts 7.53, the Bible says that the law was received by the disposition of angels. In Galatians 3.19, we're told that it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And I'll be very honest with you, when you go back, or at least when I've gone back and looked at the passages of the law being given to Moses in those Old Testament stories, I don't see any references to angels or any angels playing a part in the idea of God giving Moses the law. But in the New Testament, we are given some additional insight, and the Bible seems to indicate that angels played some sort of a role in the giving of that law. Now, it may be that the word angels here, because the word angel is not just an angelic being, and the word angel can also be used in a reference to messenger. It may just be that it is a reference to a human messenger. But either way, I want you to notice that consistently in the New Testament, we see that the law is associated with being received the law by the disposition of angels, Acts 7.53, or that it was ordained by angels, Galatians 3.19, and it's always the law. So when we go back to Hebrews 2, you keep your place in Acts and go back to Hebrews if you would, Hebrews chapter 2, when we see this phrase, for of the word spoken by angels... We know that it is a reference to the law of Moses because we can cross-reference. And by the way, that's the best way to study the Bible is to let the Bible be its own commentary to compare spiritual things with spiritual. We know that the word spoken by angels, as we compare it to other passages of Scripture, is a reference to Moses' law. Now, in the context, you can see that as well because look at what he says, Hebrews 2.2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now, what, what, what he's saying here is that the word spoken by angels was the word that whenever there was a transgression or a disobedience, it told you what the just recompense for that transgression or disobedience was. So just using common sense, we understand that that's the Mosaic Law. If you, if you read the Bible, you'll find that the books of Moses... Specifically, the last part of Exodus and Leviticus and major portions of Numbers and Deuteronomy for sure have a lot of laws in it that tell you how to deal with transgressions and disobedience. So we see here in verse 2 that both the cross-references and the context tells us that the word spoken by angels is a reference 
to the Mosaic Law and to the giving of the Mosaic Law. And here's why I make a big deal about that, because this is going to be compared and contrasted with something else. In verse 2, we see the Law of Moses. We know it's the Law of Moses because it's spoken by angels. We know that the law was received. We received the law by the disposition of angels. We know that the law was ordained by angels. But then I want you to notice what it's being compared to and what it's being contrasted to in verse number 3. In verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this, How shall we escape? Because remember the context. He says in verse 2, If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense and reward, he says, If the word spoken by angels, the Mosaic law, was steadfast, how shall we, verse 3, escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first, notice what he says, began to be spoken by the Lord. Now, who's the Lord? The Lord is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see Him named in this chapter. And we, of course, saw the Son, and, and, and the context of chapter 1 was referring to the Lord. In fact, if you remember, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says that God, in verse 1 it says that God spoke through prophets, and in verse 2 he says, But hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. That's what Hebrews 1-2 says. Hebrews 2-3 says, uh, Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, began to be spoken by the Lord. So what he's talking about is, when the Lord showed up, when the Lord Jesus Christ showed up, and the words that He said. Now what is that? Just use logic and common sense. If you have a red-letter Bible, you can open up to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and you'll see red letters all over those books. Why? Because though all of the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus is the Word of God, specifically in those books, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke and those words were written down. So notice what he says in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? And then I want you to notice, then he says this, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now he's telling us how it is that those words were spoken. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the Gospels. We're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the fact that those books contain the story of Christ, the narrative of Christ, the life of Christ. We even have documented for us the words that he spoke, he began, that, he, that began to be spoken by the Lord, and they were confirmed, verse 3, unto us by them that heard him. He says, look, those gospels were confirmed by people that actually heard Jesus speak. Now, let's just run a few cross-references here, and, and let's look at this. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. You're there in Hebrews. Go to 2 Peter. You're going to go past the book of James into 1 Peter, and then 2 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And I'm just trying to make sure you understand. Verse 2, the word spoken by angels, is a reference to the Mosaic law. Verse 3 the words that began to be spoken by the Lord and that were confirmed unto us by them that heard Him is a, is, a, uh, is a reference to the Gospels and the New Testament, the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Bible says that it was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, it is a reference to the fact that there was eyewitnesses who saw and heard the events that were jot down and written down and documented for us in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 
2 Peter 1.16, For we have not followed, this was Peter speaking, he says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. I hope you believe that. The Bible is not a bunch of cunningly, the word cunningly means clever or deceitful, devised, the word devised means thought of or or carefully thought out plan, fables is a story. He says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, notice what Peter says, he says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He says, when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we told you about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we told you the stories of of the blind being made to see and the lame being made to walk uh, and the dead being risen again, and when we told you about his crucifixion and his burial and and his resurrection, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And by the way, this is something, this is a theme in the New Testament. That though we have faith, we really don't have blind faith because God didn't just tell us, you know, believe this. But what he did was he allowed people, real people, to document what they saw with their eyes. and And it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Let me give you another example. Go to Luke chapter 1. And we can spend all night on this. I'm not going to do that, but go to Luke chapter 1. Towards the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke. I'm sorry, did you keep your place in Acts? If you kept your place in Acts, just go backwards from John into the book of Luke. If you kept your place in Acts, go backwards from John into the book of Luke. And then do me a favor, you can lose your place in Acts and just keep your place in Luke, if you would. You can forget about Acts and keep your place in Luke. If you're a little behind, it's okay. Luke is Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right? It's not not towards the beginning of the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. Notice what Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel. Because Luke is about to give us the story of the life of Christ. Here's what he says. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. It's a very eloquent eloquent way of saying there are lots of people who have told you and documented the story of Jesus Christ. And look, you ought to consider the life of Christ. Think about what it would take. Think about what it would take for somebody to document your life. I'm not talking about you documenting your life on Facebook. Because you apparently have nothing better to do than show us everything you do all day long. I'm talking about what would it take for somebody else, somebody that's not you, to sit there, and, and yet, the Lord Jesus Christ is the most documented historical figure ever. Amen. And when you consider the fact that he's in, these are ancient documents, when you consider the fact that they're ancient documents, and how much has been written about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about that which is uh, uh, divine. I mean, obviously, the scriptures are divine, but even outside of that. Here, Luke says, For as much as many as have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, verse 2, even as they delivered them unto us, notice what he says, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke said, I'm going to give you a detailed account of the life of Christ, and I got this from the eyewitnesses. Peter said, when we declared unto you, and we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Keep your place there in Luke. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. Here's what I want you to understand. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, word spoken unto us by angels is a reference to the Mosaic law. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, is a reference to the uh, New Testament and specifically to the writings of the life of Christ. So what we have is the writings of the law of Moses versus the writings of the law of Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that though the writings of the law of Moses are important, they're great, they're the word of God, they're holy scriptures, they, 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 we, we don't live under the Mosaic law as New Testament believers, but we can still learn from it and gain application and gain insight from it. He says, though the laws of Moses were great, he says, the, the writings of the law of Moses were great, but he says, let me tell you something, the writings of the life of Christ are greater. And look, something that you and I need to understand as New Testament believers, especially as those of us that study the Word of God, it is that the core of the Word of God is those gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The core, everything in the Old Testament is preparing us and, and, and building up to the climax of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And everything after it, the book of Acts and the epistles, is looking back to the life of Christ and, 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 and telling us about the life of Christ. Jesus is the most important figure of human history. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is this, that the, the writings of the law of Moses are great. The writings of the life of Christ are greater. Now, it's interesting because he tells us about the word spoken by angels, verse 2, which is the Mosaic law. Then he tells us about the words that began to be spoken by the Lord and confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Um, that is the New Testament and specifically the gospel of Christ. But I want you to notice there's one more insight here about the New Testament uh, that I think is interesting for us to understand. Not only do we see in verse 3 that the New Testament was confirmed by eyewitnesses, but we see in verse 4 that the New Testament was also confirmed by miracles. Look at verse 4. God also bearing them witness. Bearing who witness? The eyewitnesses. Because remember, it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders. That terminology, signs and wonders, in our Bible is a reference we would what we would call miracles. The Bible says that those who confirmed unto us, the eyewitnesses that confirmed unto us what they heard and what they saw, that then God confirmed them, verse 4, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. And you say, well, what is that talking about? Well, keep your place there in Hebrews. Let's go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 16. And remember, if you kept your place in Luke, you can go backwards. Right before Luke, you have the book of Mark. And I told you that this is kind of deep, deeper, heavier stuff that we, kind of, we have to dissect it and kind of take it slow. But I want you to see that the Bible is telling us that God also bearing them witness and that God bore them witness through signs and wonders and diverse miracles. Mark 16. Look at verse 17. Mark 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark 16, verse 17. Here's what Jesus said. If you have a red letter edition, these words will be in red because they are the words that began to be spoken by the Lord. 
Mark 16, 17. And these signs shall follow them. And these signs shall follow them that believe. You say, what signs? Notice what he says. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, right, right here, if we just stop right here, you know, the Charismatics and the Pentecostals, they like to go crazy off of these verses. And some of you maybe are afraid that that's where I'm going tonight. And it's like, look, we're supposed to speak with new tongues. And I mean, literally, there are people who will like take up serpents, like handle rattlesnakes. And, then, and the funny thing is that, you know, you know they were like, well, well, Paul, you know, was bit by a rattlesnake. First of all, Paul was picking up sticks. He was working and there was a snake in it, a venomous viper. He wasn't playing with a snake. And not only that, you know, these Pentecostal preachers that like to play with rattlesnakes, when they do get bit, then they're like, I survived. I'm like the Apostle Paul. What they don't tell you is that they, they go lay in bed for like three weeks, pump themselves with IV, you know, almost die. And then they're just like, I'm like the Apostle Paul. Really? I missed that in the story in Acts with the Apostle Paul. Because I'm pretty sure when the venomous viper bit him, he shook it into the fire and nothing happened to him. So they'll say, well, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to have signs that will follow them and speak with new tongues and take up serpents and it shall not hurt them and, 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 and lay hands on the sick, you know, Benny Hinn, and they shall recover. This is what we're supposed to be doing. But wait a minute. Notice what Jesus said. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Look at verse 20. And they went forth. Okay, so he gets done telling them, these are the signs that are going to follow you. And then, verse 19, he ascends up to heaven. And then verse 20, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and, notice these words, confirming the word with signs following. Now when you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find that they did speak with new tongues. You'll find that they did take up serpents, not on purpose. You'll find that they did recover the sick, and they did do these things. But why does the Bible tell us that God did this? Verse 20, Mark 16, 20, it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. What was the purpose of the sign? To confirm the word. So when Paul showed up and got bit by a snake, not on purpose, and didn't die, then people said, we should listen to this guy. And that's how we know that the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter and the writings of the New Testament, that they are legitly the Word of God. How do we know it? Well, we know it because it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. But it was also confirmed by God because God, Hebrews 2.4, was also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles. The miracles was to show that he confirmed their word. You say, well, Pastor Menes, do you think that we should uh, take up, you know, drink poison now, today, and, and we'll just survive and be fine? I don't know. Why don't you ask Jim Jones? You, you say, do you think we can just play with rattlesnakes today and we'll be fine? You think that we can do these uh, miracles today? Well, here's the thing. The word of God is done. 
It's written. The reason that the apostles had those powers, the Bible tells Look at the Bible. Hebrews 2.4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders. What was the purpose of the signs and wonders? Because God was bearing witness to their words. When John wrote the last verse of the last book of the Bible, all those things ceased. Look, I don't have to confirm the word of God to you today by surviving a rattlesnake bite. You understand that? I don't have to confirm the word of God today by trying to speak in some different language that you don't understand. You say, well, how do you confirm the word of God? The word of God confirms itself. It's the word of God. It's already been confirmed for us. So now I can stand up with authority as a New Testament preacher and tell you every word of God is pure. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I don't need to confirm it, but there was in the New Testament a time of transition when scripture was being written. And during that time, while scripture was being written, God worked with them, confirming the word with signs. Mark 16, 20. He confirmed us unto us by them that heard him, Hebrews 2, 3, the eyewitnesses, and God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will, confirming the word of God. So I hope you understand that these miracles and these signs, they've been done away with because it was for a time when God was confirming his word. Let me let you know a little secret. It's done. The word of God is done. There's no more scripture being written. In fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, he says, don't add to it and don't take anything away. It's done. Now, this might seem a little random to you. Like, why is he going off on this tangent about the law of Moses versus the life of Christ, the writings of the law of Moses and the writings of the life of Christ? But I want you to understand, if you understand the context and where the writer of Hebrews is taking us, that chapter 2 is all about the humanity of Christ. He's bringing up the scriptures that tell us about the humanity of Christ, and he's taking the moment to remind us that they were confirmed unto us by them that heard him, that they were confirmed by God, bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles, and he's reminding us that though the writings of Moses are great, the writings of the life of Christ are greater. So we see that the law of Moses versus the life of Christ, the writings of the law of Moses, great. The, law, the writings of the life of Christ, greater. The most important thing in the Bible is the life of Christ. And as you study the Old Testament, and as you study the New Testament, you should always make a beeline to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the thread that goes through the entire Old Testament. As you read those Old Testament stories, always look for those types of Christ. Always look for those symbolisms of Christ. Always look for those prophecies of Christ. Why? Because of him spake all the prophets. The law of Moses is great. The writings of the law of Moses are great, but the writings of the life of Christ are better. They were confirmed by eyewitnesses, and they were confirmed by miracles. Now remember, we're, we're heading in this direction towards the, the humanity of Christ. So the writer of Hebrews begins by talking about the writings of the life of Christ, because we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ next week, and, and we're learning about the life of Christ. But then in verse 5, we have another transition, and now we see another verses. We see this idea of human beings versus angelic beings. 
Because remember, we've been learning about the fact that Jesus is better. In fact, last week at the end of chapter 2, we had a whole sermon on the subject of angels and how Jesus is better than the angels. But now we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is setting us up for this, and he wants to not just talk about the law of Moses versus the life of Christ, but he wants to talk about human beings versus angelic beings. Notice what he says. Look at verse 5. He says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Now, he's already made all sorts of statements in chapter 1 about how Jesus is better than the angels. So he comes out just stating the fact that the angels are not that great. And he says, here's why they're not that great, because unto the angels hath he, God, not put in subjection the world to come. The angels are not going to be running the show in the next world, in the millennial reign. He's not put the world under their subjection, whereof we speak. Look at verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, now he's going to quote for us from the Old Testament. He says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? I'd like you to go with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 8. If you open up your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely follow the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 8 because I want you to see where this, this, this quote comes from. And I'd also like you to keep your finger right there in Psalms. We're going to come right back to it. Uh, but look at Psalm 8 and verse 4. Hebrews 2, 6, he says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, and then he quotes the Old Testament. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Psalm 8, 4, so is being quoted here. Notice what he says, the psalmist in Psalm 8, 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And look, that's a sobering thought. What is man that God would think of us, that God would consider us, that God would care of us. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And I want you to notice that this is a verse about humanity, but there's two aspects here. One is speaking about mankind in general, humanity in general, the sons of men in general. And he says, when it comes to the sons of men, when it comes to human descendants, when it comes to mankind, he says, what is man in general that thou art mindful of him? But then he says, and the son of man. Now, all throughout the Bible, that phrase, the son of man, and specifically in the New Testament, is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two phrases are used of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of man. In the New Testament, the Son of Man is actually used more times than the phrase the Son of God. Both are important because the phrase the Son of God speaks to His deity and the phrase the Son of Man speaks to His humanity. And here we see that we're talking about humanity in general. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And then the Son of Man, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him. So we see that we have this idea, this subject gets brought up about humanity. And the reason he's bringing up humanity is because he's going to make the point that Jesus was a human and Jesus was a man. And notice what he says about humanity. Keep your place right there in Psalms. Go back to Hebrews 2. Look at verse 7. Look at the, last, look at the first part of verse 7. Hebrews 2 and verse 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now this is specifically said of Christ later on in the passage. And some can make the argument that it's talking about Christ. Now, I think this is talking about humanity in general. He's talking about humanity in general, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying God has made 
the angels has made us human beings a little lower than the angels. Look at Psalm 103 and verse 20. If you kept your place in Psalms, you're in Psalm 8, go to Psalm 103. You say, what is that talking about? When the Bible says that mankind is a little lower than the angels, that is a reference to mankind being a little lower than the angels in power. Meaning that in person, as a person, if I were to go up against an angel, Gabriel, Michael the archangel, whatever, their power is greater than my power. And in general, the power of angels is greater than the power of human beings. Psalm 103, verse 20, look at what the Bible says. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength. The Bible says that angels excel in strength. We could take time tonight, I'm not going to, but we could go to passages where we see that they fly. We see that they move, the Bible says, as lightning. They've, they've got, I mean, they're, they're superheroes. They fly, they run fast, they're stronger than everyone else. So in person and in power, human beings are made a little lower than the angels because if you got in a fight with an angel, they would beat you up. Which is another reason why, you know, these Pentecostals need to be careful about, you know, talking about, I'm going to fight the devil. Let me remind you, the devil is an angel. And he's stronger and mightier than you are. In person, mankind is a little lower than the angels, is a reference to in person, in power. But then I want you to notice, go back to Hebrews 2 and verse 7, that the Bible says that in Hebrews 2 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. I'd like you to notice that though mankind is a little lower than the angels in power, mankind has all things in subjection under his feet in position. God put everything under the subjection of human beings. He says, Thou madest him, referring to humanity, a little lower than the angels, and crownest him with glory and honor, and to set him over the works of thy hand. Let's look at that. Let's run a cross-reference. Go to Genesis chapter 1. First book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. First chapter in the Bible should be even easier to find. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 27. Notice what God says about humanity. And look, this is important. Because these doctrines and these thoughts are under attack today. If you have a child in a public school right now, or if you have a child that is taking college courses today, let me tell you what they are teaching them in school today. They are teaching them that they are animals. Literally, that we're just part of the animal kingdom. We're primates, and we just happen to evolve a little better than the other guy or whatever. But we're just an animal. There's nothing different between us and, 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 and the rest of the, and, and, and all other animals. And, you know, and I think that, and I sit there and I look at my stinking beagle, <laughs> who's probably the stupidest creature that's ever been created. Completely useless, only has one use, and that is to love on Hannah, which is the only reason we keep her. And, and, and I think to myself, these supposedly educated, smart PhD people say, oh, we're no different than an animal. I'm looking at a stinking dog and think to myself, you're an idiot. Oh, we're an animal just like uh, any, any other animal on this earth. Genesis 127. Notice what the Bible says. So God created man in his own image. Man is not an animal. 
Man is not equal to an animal. God created animals, and he created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Don't miss it. And subdue it. And have dominion over it. The fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You know that the Bible teaches that though we, humanity, was made a little lower than the angels, in person and in power, in position, we were uh, set over all the works of His hands, and He put us over all of His works, and He gave us the earth, and He said, subdue it and have dominion over it. Now look, I don't think that we should mistreat animals, and I don't think that we should be bad to animals. Obviously, we should care for animals, and anybody that mistreats animals, you should be suspicious of them anyway. I don't think that we should pollute the earth and just, look, I, sometimes I, 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 I live in the ghetto, which I'm actually proud of, but <laughs> one thing that I can't stand, I, there's so many times when I'm driving down the street, and I'll just watch people just throw trash out their door, just... I mean, I, I just want to, like, ram them through with my car. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I mean, where? who raised you? Really? Like, the reason there's trash everywhere is because of you and all the homeless. So I don't even know what I was talking about. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, we, we shouldn't. We shouldn't um, I really don't like trash on the, you know. Can you guys pick up your own trash, please? <laughs> we should take care of the environment. We should take care of animals, but we are not animals. And we should not look at animals as equals to human beings. We are made in the image of God. God told us to subdue it and have dominion. Go ahead and eat Bambi. It's okay. <laughs> Go ahead and eat, eat animals, all those things. It's fine. God, God gave us the position. Now you say, well, why did God give us the position? Well, obviously, we're not just animals. We were made in the image of God. But I want you to understand that the writer of Hebrews gives us a little insight that I don't, I've never seen before. I learned this just studying this chapter myself this week, and I thought it was interesting. The reason that all the way in Genesis, the reason that all the way in Genesis, God looked at humanity, because he made humans in his own image, but he did not have to put the earth in our submission. He did not have to put the earth in our dominion. But God said, I've given you the position of having the earth in dominion. I've given it to mankind. But there was a reason for that. You say, what, what was the reason? Here's the reason. We'll learn it next week. It's because God knew that his son would become man. God knew that his son would become flesh. And God knew that his son would one day die on the cross and be buried and resurrect and ascend to heaven. And God knew that that human being 100% God and 100% man would then reign on the earth. And God, when God said, I give mankind dominion, that was true, that was all mankind. But who he was thinking of was Christ, because he knew that one day the human being Christ would have all things put under his foot. Hebrews 2, look at verse 8. We see the sons of men generally in verse 7, thou madest him a little lower than the angels that crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hand. But then we see the Son of Man, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. 
I won't have you turn here because I'm running out of time, but go to Ephesians, or just, let me just read this to you. Ephesians 1.22, the Bible says, and I put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. I want you to notice in verse 8 here, I, I, I need to finish up verse 8. Look, look at verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But then look at the last part of verse 8. He says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, though everything is put under his feet, we don't see that yet because we still live in this fallen world. But we know, and I won't have you turn there because I'm out of, town, out of time and I have something else I want to cover, but if you'd like to jot this down, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Hebrews 2, 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But let me tell you something, there's coming a day when Jesus will rule and reign on this earth and all things will be put under his feet. And, and he has a right to it, not just because he's God, but because he's man, and because God gave dominion of the earth to humanity. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop right there as far as going forward in the chapter, because I, wa- I want to get back to verses 1, 2, and 3 real quickly. Um, we're going to pick this up next week when we study Hebrews chapter 2 again, and I encourage you to be with us next week as we do that. I, I do want you to just see the first phrase of verse 9. I love these words. But we see Jesus. The first time we see his name in this book is Hebrews 2.9. We'll see it a total of uh, 14 times, I believe. But he says there, but now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, and we'll cover that next week. I'd like you to go back to Hebrews chapter 1. I got I have five minutes, and I'd like to just go back and look at verses 1, 2, and 3 quickly as we finish up tonight. Because we see some great applications here in verses 1, 2, and 3. I'd like you to look at verse 1 again. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. That word, therefore, connects us back to chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1 teaches about the deity of Christ. And in verse 1, we're told, therefore, because of that reason, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time, I just want you to notice just this little phrase, we should let them slip. The Bible says that we need to be careful to not allow the things of God to just kind of slip out of our hands. Because the truth is this, that generally speaking, not always, but I would say the vast majority of time, the way that people quit on God the way that people get backslidden, same idea as let them slip, the way that people drift away from the Lord, it doesn't happen instantaneously. You don't go from, oh, I just grew up in church and I've, li- I've just gone to church my whole life and then I just wake up one day and I'm a drug addict and I'm in prison. It doesn't happen that way. You say, how does it happen? Here's how it happens. Slowly. You let them slip. It's like the story of the frog boiling in the water. If you put a frog, a live frog, in hot water, it'll jump right out. The devil knows that. So he puts the frog in cold water and just slowly begins to turn up that temperature. 
Before you know it, you wake up one day and you're boiling. You're dead. You're done. But you didn't notice it because it happened slowly. You let it slip. He says, don't let things slip. The Bible talks about being a backslider, the backslider in heart. The idea is this, that when we drift away from God, when we slip away from God, when we backslide away from God, it happens slowly. We slip slowly. Sometimes people don't notice. It just We, we go from, from being faithful to church, faithful to Sunday morning, faithful to Sunday night, faithful to Wednesday night. Now we're, we're still faithful Sunday morning, and, and, but just not Sunday night, just Wednesday night. And then we'll come back one, and we'll miss another one, and then we'll miss two, and we'll come back another one, then we'll miss three, and it just slowly, you begin to slip. Don't let things slip, is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. How do things get out of control? You let them slip. How do things go, go bad in life? You let them slip. They don't normally just go bad all of a sudden. It's just a slow progress of sliding back. So he says, don't let things slip. And I want to encourage you, don't let things slip in your life. And then he says this, don't neglect. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, we ought to give the most earnest heed. Earnest heed means to pay attention. We have to give the most earnest heed. Why? Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And here's not talking about salvation. It's talking about everything that salvation brings. Because salvation is just the, 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 the step of, I'm born again on my way to heaven. That's just the beginning. God wants you. There's things that he wants to give you with that salvation. And God says, don't neglect it. You say, why? Because when you neglect it, you let it slip. So let me tell you something. Don't neglect your Bible reading. How's your Bible reading? Don't answer that out loud. But honestly, be honest in your heart. How's your, man, I've been slipping in my Bible reading. Well, stop it. Don't neglect. Hey, don't, don't neglect your prayer time. Don't let your prayer time slip away. Hey, how about this one? Don't neglect your church attendance. You say, well, Pastor Jimenez, you know, you're speaking to the choir. I mean, there's almost 200 people here on a Wednesday night. And praise the Lord for that. But you know, you ought not let your church attendance slip. And, and, and you know, I'm thankful. Things are going great at Verity Baptist Church. I'm thankful how things are going. We're, we're growing, and, and, and praise God for it. But, you know, you should have a goal in your Christian life to be what we like to call three to thrive. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And let me just say something about the Sunday night service, because I've noticed this over the last, probably last year, but it, it seems like the Sunday night service, people will act like it's the least important service. And let me just explain something to you. Anytime the Word of God is open, it's important. And like, for example, like, like this week, I mean, we had 246 people in church on Sunday morning, 194 people in church tonight, 169 on Sunday night. Now, 169 is great. And look, if five people showed up, I'd be excited, and I would preach to five people like I preached to 200 people, like I'd preach to 1,000 people. But I've noticed that the Sunday night service tends to be lower, and, 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 and here's why. I should say, here's why I think. Because it's this thing like, why, you know, because when I was growing up in church, it was like Sunday morning church was the most attended service, Sunday night church was the second most attended service, and then Wednesday night was the least attended service. And then, but our church is different. It's like Sunday morning is the most attended service, Wednesday night is the second most attended service, and then Sunday night is the least attended service. And I think this is what people think in their head. They think like, well, it's two times on Sunday. 
because we go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night. But, you know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the fact because football season is starting. And, you know, all over the country, you've got teenage boys in high schools and young men in college. And you know what they do to train for football? They have these things. They're called two-a-days. They'll go, they'll, go, they'll, they'll go work out and practice their, for their little football game all day in the morning. They'll take a lunch break, take a little out, few hours to rest, and then you know what they do? They go do it again. It's called two-a-days. They go play football twice in one day. You say, why are you bringing this up? Because I'd like for some of you to get excited about the Bible as excited as you get about football. I mean, if they'll go play games twice a day, hey, I, we should play church twice a day. You say, what's Sunday? It's our two-a-days. Don't cut out halfway through the practice. You need both. Sunday morning, like you say, why are you bringing... I just think, so we call Wednesday night the most encouraging service of the week, and I really do think it is because you've been out working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You've been back in the world for a couple of days. It's nice to get back out with the family, with the church family. It's the most encouraging service of the week. But let me tell you something. Sunday night's the most exciting service of the week. Amen. I think we should make Sunday nights great again. <laughs> I'm just trying to cover all the things that you guys like. Politics, you like politics? Make Sunday night great again. You like football? Make Sundays your two-a-days. How about just be faithful to church? Because you say, well, why does it matter? Because the word of God is being preached. And look, can you honestly say, are you honestly going to tell me that you can stand before God and say that whatever you do on Sunday night or Sunday morning or Wednesday night, will you choose to skip church is more important than the word of God and God's people? Try to pull that off with Jesus. Well, I have to watch this show. How is that more important than the Word of God? So you got to be faithful. Hey, don't let things slip because, you know, one of the things, the, the, the hardest, one of the hardest parts of the ministry, my wife and I often talk about this, is just watching people slowly slip away. And you try to catch them, you try to help them. But usually by the time you start identifying it in their actions, their heart has already drifted away. This is why the Bible says the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. So he says, don't let it slip. So how do I not let it slip? You don't let it slip by not neglecting. Don't neglect your Bible reading. Don't neglect your prayer time. Don't neglect your church attendance. Hey, don't neglect your soul winning. And look, I'm a firm believer, and I realize my wife and I, we tend to be a little more organized than most people, and I get it. But I'm a firm believer that if it's important to you, you ought to track it. You need to track it. If it's important, track it. And, and look, just in life. But you know what you should be doing is tracking your Bible reading. And you know what some of you need to do is start tracking your church attendance because you might be shocked if you actually start, grab a calendar and put an X. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, oh, oh. You might be shocked how unimportant God is in your life. And you should make God a priority. And if people are going to play football and, take that and, the, and, and think that's important for two-a-days, then you need to give God two-a-days. Because the greatest thing that you and I do with our lives is not throw a ball around, but get involved in, in the greatest thing that can be done, which is the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and reaching souls with the gospel. So he says, don't let things slip. 
He says, don't neglect, and you ought not neglect. You ought to take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Don't let your Bible reading slip. Don't let your prayer time slip. Don't let your church attendance slip. Don't let your soul winning slip, because you let it slip. Oh, well, I'm just tired of this one Saturday. I'm just, well, I, I have something to do this other Saturday. And, and, and then you, you look up one day, and you haven't been soul winning in six months. Look, you ought to just make a decision in your life. This is a decision that my wife and I, you say, well, you're the pastor. We made the decision before I was the pastor of any church. The decision was this. We go to church Sunday morning. We go to church Sunday night. We go to church Wednesday night. We go soul winning once a week, Saturday morning. We do that. And if we're not going to do that, then, you know, it's going to be because God stopped us. But some of you, you have this idea where you're just like, well, I'll go to church if, if I can, if I have time. Well, the devil's always going to give you a reason why not to. So don't let things slip. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And he says, don't neglect it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You say, well, you're just trying to get more people to come to church. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Duh. You say, you say why, why do you want us to come to church on Sunday night? Because if I can preach the Bible to you three times, you know, three times is better than two. Two is better than one. Here's what I know about you and me and everyone else. The more Bible we get, the better. But let me give you a selfish reason why you don't want to let things slip. He says, number one, verse one, don't let things slip. He says, number two, verse three, don't neglect. Then I want you to notice that in verses two and three, he makes this point. He says, don't let things slip and don't neglect. Here's why. Because you will not escape. Look at verse two. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, if what they got in the Old Testament was steadfast, and here's what he means by steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we? Here's what he's saying. If in the Old Testament, when they looked through a glass darkly, if in the Old Testament, when they were looking to the New Testament, they saw symbols and they saw shadows, but they didn't understand the whole thing. They didn't get the whole story. If in the Old Testament, God held them to a standard and God held them to a high standard where he said that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, then he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Here's how Jesus said it in the New Testament. He said, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Here's all I'm saying. You have way too much access. You have, you have way too much going for you. And God says, Because you have so much, you're not going to escape. He said, go ahead, let things slip. Go ahead, let things neglect. Go ahead, let your marriage fall apart. Go ahead, let your children be worldly and watch things they shouldn't be watching. Go ahead and skip church. Go ahead. He said, do all those things. But let me tell you something. If I brought judgment upon them who didn't have half what you have, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let me say something to you here at Verity Baptist Church. because I don't. I, 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 sometimes I think you guys just don't really understand this, and I get it. It's not your fault. You're just... Spoiled. We get emails every week around here, people telling us they wish they could come to church like this. Telling us they wish we could start. People asking me to leave you and go start a church somewhere else. 
All over this country, all over this world, people wishing they had a Pastor Roger Jimenez, a Miss Joanne Jimenez, a Verity Baptist Church. You have it down the street. If you let it slip, if you neglect it, I'm just telling you, you will not escape. God will hold you to a higher standard. You have too much. There's too much that has been entrusted in you. There's too much that you have been given. You know too much for unto whomsoever much is given. Of him shall be much required. So don't let it slip. Don't neglect it. You ought to track it. I'm being serious. You ought to track your Bible reading. You ought to track your prayer time. You ought to track your church attendance. I do. You ought to track your soul winning. Don't let it slip because you won't escape. Let's bow right to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this word. Think of the Bible. Think of these passages. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be steadfast like your word. Help us to take the things of God seriously. Lord, help us not to let them slip. I pray that you'd help us to get serious about the things of God. We've been given so much. We have the word of God. We have a great church. Good fellowship. Bible preaching. Help us to not neglect these things. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song, and I think we're going to prepare for baptism tonight um, as we sing.